Chapter 1, Part 2 of U.S. Marine Operations in Korea, 1950-1953, Volume 2, The Inchon Seoul Operation, by Lynn Montross and Nicholas Canzona. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Communist Challenge Request for a Marine Division General Shepard's few days in Tokyo were filled with conferences, and history was made on 10 July during the course of a conversation with General MacArthur at FECOM headquarters. The commander-in-chief was not optimistic about the situation at the front. Not only had the NKPA invasion developed into a formidable threat at the end of the first two weeks, but the possibility of Red Chinese or Soviet armed intervention could not be dismissed. President Truman had named General MacArthur as Supreme Commander of UN Forces after the Security Council passed a resolution on 7 July calling for a unified effort in Korea. General Walker was soon to be appointed to the command of the 8th Army in Korea, USAC, assuming control of all rock ground forces. The personnel situation had grown critical. After being completely routed, the rock troops were now in process of reorganization into five divisions. Meanwhile, the U.S. 25th Infantry Division was being sent to Korea as rapidly as possible, and it had been decided to withdraw the 1st Cavalry Division from consideration as the landing force of the proposed Incheon operation. Not only were these troops lacking in amphibious training, but they were needed as infantry reinforcements. Thus it was planned for the combat-loaded 1st Cavalry Division to make a landing at the east coast port of Pohongdong under the direction of Comfibru-1, and mobile training team ABLE, before proceeding to the front. This would leave only the 7th Infantry Division in Japan, and it was being stripped of troops to fill out units of the other three. The outweighed UN forces were still limited to delaying actions. But General MacArthur hoped that space could be traded for time until the arrival of stateside units enabled him to take the offensive. At his urgent request, the 2nd Infantry Division and 2nd Engineer Special Brigade had been alerted in the United States for immediate movement to the Far East. Port dates commencing on 20 July had been assigned, and General Wright expressed his opinion that these units might be employed along with the recently activated 1st Provisional Marine Brigade to initiate the 1st UN Counterstroke. The only hope of an early UN decision, General MacArthur told CGFMF PAC at their conference of 10 July, lay in the launching of an amphibious assault to cut supply lines in the enemy's rear. This situation, he added, reminded him of the critical days of World War II in the Pacific, when troops trained in amphibious techniques were urgently needed to make ship-to-shore landings on Japanese-held islands. In a reminiscent mood, MacArthur recalled the competence shown by the 1st Marine Division while under his control during the New Britain operation of 1943 to 1944. If only he had this unit in Japan, he said, he would employ it at his first opportunity as his landing force for the Incheon assault. Shepard, who had been assistant division commander of the 1st Marine Division during the New Britain landings, immediately suggested that the U.N. Supreme Commander make a request that the 1st Marine Division with appropriate Marine Air be assigned to him. This possibility had apparently been put aside by MacArthur after being limited to an RCT in his request of 2 July. He asked eagerly if the Marine General believed that the division could be made available for an Incheon landing as early as 15 September. And Shepard replied that since the unit was under his command, 
he would take the responsibility for stating that it could be sent to Korea by that date, minus the infantry regiment and other troops of the brigade. Thus, history was made without pomp or ceremony during the conference at FICOM headquarters. The date was 10 July, but it was already D-67 for thousands of American young men. On farms and in offices, in cities and villages from coast to coast, these civilians had no inkling that just 67 days later they would be fighting their way ashore in a major amphibious operation. For they were Marine Reservists, and the 1st Marine Division could not be brought up to full strength without calling them back into uniform. Shepard realized, even while assuring MacArthur that the division could be made combat ready by 15 September, that the activation of the brigade had left the division with less than the strength of a single RCT. Nearly as many men would be required to bring it up to full strength as were contained at present in the entire fleet marine force. But so great was his confidence in the Marine Corps Reserve that he did not hesitate to take the responsibility. Nor did MacArthur lose any time at making up his mind. That very day, 10 July, he sent his first request to the Joint Chiefs of Staff for a Marine Division. As the conference ended, Shepard found the UN Supreme Commander enthusiastic about the prospect of employing again the Marine outfit that had been his reliance seven years before in the New Britain operation. He planned to stabilize the front in Korea as soon as possible, he said, as a prelude to the landing in the NKPA rear, which he believed would be decisive. America's Force in Readiness Long before the New Britain landing, Cates and Shepard had learned from first-hand experience as junior officers how decisive a force in readiness can be. The lieutenant from Tennessee and the lieutenant from Virginia took part in June 1918 with the Marines who stopped the Germans by counterattacking at Bella Wood. In terms of human tonnage, two Marine regiments did not cut much of a figure in the American Expeditionary Force. What counted was the readiness of the Marines and a few outfits of U.S. Army regulars at a time when most of the American divisions had not yet finished training. More than three decades later, as CMC and CGFMF PAC, both generals were firm advocates of the force and readiness concept as a basic mission of the Marine Corps. It was a mission that had evolved from practice rather than theory. During the half-century since the Spanish-American War, there had been only two years when the U.S. Marines were not on combat duty somewhere. It had long been a tradition that the Marines, as transitory naval forces, might land on foreign soil without the implication of hostilities usually associated with invasion. This principle was invoked, along with a liberal interpretation of the Monroe Doctrine, by the State Department from 1906 to 1932 in the Caribbean and Central America. As a means of supervising unstable governments in sensitive strategic areas, Marines were sent to Cuba, Mexico, Haiti, the Dominican Republic, Nicaragua, and China for long periods of occupation. U.S. Marines were not only web-footed infantry during these overseas operations, they also distinguished themselves as scouts, cannoneers, constabulary, engineers, and horse Marines. As modern warfare grew more complex, however, the time came when the Leathernecks could no longer sail on a few hours' notice as the Gangplank Expeditionary Force made up of men detailed from the nearest posts and stations. No longer could such light weapons as machine guns, mortars, and mountain howitzers serve as the only armament necessary for seizing a beachhead. 
The Fleet Marine Force evolved in 1933, therefore, to fill the need for a corps of highly trained amphibious specialists capable of carrying out a major ship-to-shore assault against modern defensive weapons. New landing craft as well as new landing tactics and techniques were developed during the next 10 years, and the reputation of the Marine Corps as a force in readiness was upheld in the amphibious operations of World War II. During these three eventful decades of Marine development, General Cates and General Shepard had participated in all the stages while ascending the ladder of command. Thus, in the summer of 1950, they were eminently qualified for leadership in the task of building the 1st Marine Division up to war strength for the amphibious operation which General MacArthur hoped to launch on 15 September. As a prerequisite, the sanction of Congress and the authorization of the President had to be obtained before the Marine Corps Reserve could be mobilized. General MacArthur's request of 10 July for a Marine Division went to the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who referred it to General Cates. The Commandant could only reply that it would be necessary to call out the Reserve, and no action was taken on this first request. It was enough that a beginning had been made, and CMC put his staff to work on the necessary studies and plans. General Shepard was meanwhile winding up his visit to Tokyo by conferring with Admirals Joy and Doyle and Generals Almond and Stratemeyer. The Air Force General tentatively confirmed, subject to discussion with his staff, the assignment of Itami Airfield in Japan to Marine Air Units. He also informed CGFMF PAC that he accepted as valid the principle of employing Marine Air in support of Marine Ground Forces. The air situation in Korea had struck General Shepard as abounding in paradoxes. He noted that B-29s are employed against tactical targets to the dissatisfaction of all concerned, the Air Force because of misemployment of its planes, and the ground forces because of the results achieved. Carrier aircraft, despite the wealth of close support targets available, were committed against deep and semi-strategic targets. Jet fighters, with little enemy air to engage, had been assigned to close support work despite a fuel restriction which holds them to no more than 15 minutes in the combat zone. Only a very limited number of aircraft adaptable to tactical support missions are available, F-51 and B-26, and there appears to be urgent need for suitable close support aircraft along with competent air-ground liaison units. These conclusions had much to do with the marine policy, dating back to World War II, of insisting whenever possible on marine close air support for marine ground forces. Without disparaging other techniques, Marines believed that their own flyers, trained in marine infantry methods, could provide the most effective tactical air for marine infantry. Planning for the Pohong Landing While General Shepard was flying back to Pearl Harbor, a succession of sleepless nights awaited the officers of FIBGRU-1, the Anglico Group, and Training Team ABLE. Upon the shoulders of these amphibious specialists fell the task of drawing up the orders, planning the loading, and mounting out the troops of the 1st Cavalry Division for its landing of 18 July at Pohong Dong. It was not even certain, when the division commenced loading at Yokohama on 14 July, that Pohong Dong could be held by the rocks long enough for a landing to be effected. Three reinforced NKPA divisions were making the enemy's main thrust down the Seoul Taejon axis. They were opposed only by wary 24th Infantry Division units fighting delaying actions, 
while falling back on Tejan and the line of the River Coombe. Along the east coast and the mountains of the central sector, five regrouped and reorganized rock divisions held as best they could. Two of these units in the center were being relieved by the U.S. 25th Infantry Division, which completed its movement to Korea on the 14th. As a preliminary step in the Pohang landing, a reconnaissance party of Army, Navy, and Marine officers flew from Tokyo on 11 July into the objective area. They returned two days later with valuable information about the beaches, depths of water, and unloading facilities. Because of the extraordinary speed with which the landing at Pohangdong was conceived, planned, and executed, said the report of Comfibgru-1, there was no opportunity for conventional and orderly planning, since all echelons of the planning force were installed in offices at GHQ in Tokyo. It was possible to employ the quickest and most informed ways of doing business. Telephone conversations and oral directives were used in place of dispatches, letters, and formal orders. Lack of amphibious shipping in the area made it a Herculean labor to provide boat servicing gear, general securing gear, debarkation nets, towing bridles, and boat and vehicle slings in less than a week. By 14 July, however, enough shipping to move the four embarkation groups of the division had been assembled at Yokohama. Two MSTS transports, two AKAs, six LSUs, and 16 LSTs in addition to LCVPs and LCMs. The transport group and screen got underway on the 15th for a rendezvous near the objective area on D-Day with the tractor group. Naval aircraft of Rear Admiral John M. Hoskins' carrier group of the 7th Fleet were on call to provide support, but at 0558 on the 18th, the armada was unopposed as it steamed into Yonggil Bay. CTF-90 signaled orders for the carrying out of Plan Baker, calling for a landing against little or no enemy resistance. By midnight, the Mount McKinley, Union, Oglethorpe, and Titania had been completely unloaded, and the LSTs had accounted for 60% of their cargoes. Altogether, 10,027 troops, 2,022 vehicles, and 2,729 tons of bulk cargo were put ashore on D-Day. The second echelon consisted of six LSTs, three APs, and four Japanese freighters, while six LSTs made up the third echelon. These ships discharged their cargo from 23 to 29 July, having been delayed by Typhoon Grace. And on the 30th, Comfibgru-1, as CTF-90, reported that the operation had been completed and no naval units were now at the objective. Viewed superficially, the uncontested Pohang landing may have seemed a tame affair to the stateside newspaper readers. Nevertheless, it was a timely demonstration of Navy and Marine Corps amphibious know-how and Army energy, and it came at a critical moment. The important communications center of Tejan had to be abandoned by the 24th Infantry Division units on 20 July, and it was growing apparent that the 8th Army would be hard-pressed to retain a foothold in Korea until reinforcements from the states could give the United Nations a material equality. It was a time when every platoon counted, and the fresh regiments of General Gay's division were rushed to the Yongdong area two days after their landing to relieve weary and battered elements of the 24th Infantry Division. End of Chapter 1, Part 2 Red 
by Aaron Bennett.